From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the VinePair Friday podcast. And okay, so I just want to say, first of all, thank you all for everyone that emailed in, that DM'd, etc. We had more reaction to this past Monday's podcast than we've ever had to a podcast before. And so because of that, there were lots of like follow-up questions and things like that. So we're going to continue the conversation about how wine's fucked. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) But no, I, I, I do think one of the things I was thinking about a lot this week based on some questions that people had asked is just sort of how antiquated the way that wine views media is. I just want to give an anecdote. It's happened a few times to me via people in the wine industry. So VinePair is the largest publication about alcohol in the country. Um, We talk to about 36 million people every single month, people like yourselves that listen to the podcasts, uh, read the site, you know, go through social, etc. It's a big publication. Mm -hmm. But we write about all facets of beverage alcohol. I mean, those of you who listen know, right? Beer, spirits, etc. What data also shows us is that in regular consumption by millennials, Gen Z, and young Gen X, they are also drinking all types of alcohol, cocktails, beer, straight spirits, seltzers, and wine. But there have been so many occasions when, especially over the last two years, I've talked to winemakers, executives, et cetera, at wine companies who say to me, well, Vampire's not really a wine publication. <laughs> you guys like do more spirits. I'm like, no, no, no. We do it all because we, everyone reads it all and drinks it all. If you look at the general editorial mix of the publication, we, we I mean, Joanna, you can speak to this as the editor in chief. Mm-hmm. We pretty much try to keep it a third, a third, a third of coverage of all three major areas of alcohol, right? Yes. But like you would think if you talk to a wine person because they see spirits, they think it's a spirits publication. Whereas, again, just back to what we talked about Monday, that has seeing wine on our site has never dissuaded a spirits brand. Right. They yeah. never said, well, Vine Pair is really a wine publication. They said, oh, you talk to drinkers? Cool, 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 cool. We want to talk to drinkers too. And again, I think that goes back to where wine has traditionally felt that it was comfortable, which was in a very insular wine space. Yep. And I think wine has done a very bad job adapting into the real world of where everyone is now, which is just a, a total drink space. And it yeah. continues to want to be in a wine space and a wine space only. And I think that's why you see things like, well, there was an award ceremony that happened earlier this week with a bunch of old people at it and <laughs> no, and no one else there. Like where were the, I, I saw the pictures. There was no young people there. I'm not going to talk about which award ceremony it was, but it was a big wine award ceremony. Well, I'm not going to say a big wine award ceremony. It was a wine award ceremony. <laughs> and like the, the people all there like look pretty close to heading to like, you know, grand risings or whatever the, you would, the villages. would call like the people who drink wine. Yeah, they're forever home. You know, in the ground. But like, I think, I think that that it speaks very, very, tr- you know, honestly about where wine is, and you don't see this that much at the traditional spirits things, and the fact that like the people who are representing in the marketing in the world of marketing wine are saying those kinds of things to m- myself and my team all the time. I think shows that wine's pretty screwed right now because until wine brings in marketers that can see that they really need to, they need to be talking to the gin drinker. They need to talk to the bourbon drinker. They need to talk to the person who loves hazy IPAs. Yep. Until they realize that 
they are fucked. Because people don't drink these things exclusively anymore. No. They drink everything. And so I think, you know, we, we're competing with a lot of like more niche publications who don't actually cover everything. But I think when you talk to these people, that's kind of where their head is at still. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you can't do that anymore today. You can't. Well, and I think one of the main reasons for that is that wine prior to the last, say, 10 to 15 years, I'll, I'll put it at, really did have a pretty significant chunk of the market to itself. And that was for the kind of drinker who mm-hmm. wanted their drinking to be a sort of prestigious sort of thing that said something about themselves. And and most other categories of beverage alcohol, with the exception maybe of something like single malt whiskey and really just scotch, didn't connote the same kind of like sophistication that a fine wine did. And so yep. when we hear this refrain from uh, the wine industry of like, oh, don't worry, we're not worried, millennials, Gen Z, they'll age into drinking wine. What they're really, I think, trying to say is like, they will at some point want to associate themselves with the prestige that comes from fine wine. But what those people have missed is that there are so many kinds of beverage alcohol now that convey a similar level of sophistication mm-hmm. and prestige, be it certain craft beers, be it lots and lots of things in the spirit space. I mean, we've cu- we've talked on the podcast extensively about the crazy market there is for whiskey. And someone can feel as sophisticated as they want to be drinking expensive whiskey, whether that's in a at a bar mm-hmm. or restaurant or at home. And they don't need wine to do that anymore. Some of them mm-hmm. will still probably get interested in wine through that lens, right? They, they'll still want to say about themselves what they feel like wine says about themselves. But it's not it's not a market that can afford to be just writing off a good chunk of a demographic. And that's what seems no. to be happening. And, and it's obviously not just in this specific case, but it's the one that I keep thinking about because it was a thing that I think wine in this country, at least, really had to itself was – if you wanted to be seen as a sophisticated drinker, wine was the thing you had to know, the thing you had to own, and the thing you had to consume. And now you can be a sophisticated drinker who's all about agave. That just wasn't yep. the case 15, 20 years ago. Well, you know what this sounds a lot like, Zach? What? I have no idea. This sounds, I mean, it's completely accurate. What you're saying is completely accurate. And there's another very large organization in our, in our world that makes this same argument. The Republican Party. Oh, you're just going to get older and you're going to you're going to make more money and you will age into being a Republican. You'll see when you make more money that you don't like it going to your taxes and you're going to feel like the smarter person and you're going to become a Republican. And guess what? That's not happening. Mm-hmm. And the millennials and Gen X that are and, and Gen Z for sure are staying left center left even but left mm-hmm. that's i mean yeah. everyone has seen that look and guess what one of one of the owners of an old school wine publication is one of trump's biggest donors so like that was a thing that was a thought you were like to be sophisticated you drank wine you smoked cigars and you voted republican and yeah. that's not the case anymore and this is th- this is that same group that's like this is what you've heard in so many other industries that didn't want to adapt whether it was music that didn't want to embrace digital and streaming. No, 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 don't worry. There will always be people who buy records and CDs. Like, no, that changed, right? Like, don't worry with movies. Like, people are going to go back to the movie theaters. 
They're not. <laughs> they're not going back. And like the movies are going to shoot themselves in the foot because all these studios right now that are saying we're only going to release this in the theaters, and then the numbers for everything but the biggest blockbuster sucks because people just kind of want to now watch it at home yeah. because they have really nice TVs, et cetera. Like this is the same thing. Well, you'll just age into this, and this has been the Republican Party's sort of idea and sta- and, and thesis for the last like decade at least yeah. and it's not happening and it's not going to happen in wine either and that's why you have to meet them where they are because zach you make an excellent point there are so many other ways now in beverage to show that you are sophisticated whether it's drinking a really good martini or it's knowing what kind of amaros you like or scotches or just happening to know how to make a fucking negroni like yeah. All of these things are things that our parents' generation didn't have. Let's remember that our parents' generation drank cocktails made with mix with sour mixes. Like yeah. cocktails were not the same thing they were. They were, you know, Tom Collins was literally sour mix and gin. You know, there's that like amazing meet the Fockers scene where like they go out to get the Tom Collins mix. Like that is what a drinking a cocktail was. Mm. That's not what drinking a cocktail is anymore. And I don't think wine has realized that. And so because of that, they're sitting here waiting for a group that if they don't talk to them is never going to just come to them. Yeah, I don't know. In in talking about this, even before we recorded the last episode, it, it just seems mind boggling to me that you wouldn't make an attempt to get more people in the funnel mm-hmm. earlier. Like, why not? And I guess it's just, is it that they really don't know? Because this report has been kind of similar for a few years now, right? Like we've been talking about this for a few years now. I think it's, but it's exactly what Zach said. I think that the general idea from like the the majority of like, especially the fine wine world is they will age in. Right. In the same way that the belief has been of Republicans, we will age in. Mm -hmm. Like there would, there's just, there's going to be a point when millennials take the place of boomers and they're, they're the ones with the wealth and they will just come to the category Mm -hmm. and we're not seeing that. And we don't care if we can get them sooner. Right. We're not. And it's because they do still have a category that's growing, right? Like that report does show that like amongst boomer sets, what I think what everyone was was screaming about like for the last 10 years as well has been that like the sellers of boomers are full mm-hmm. but clearly that's not stopping these auctions from being insane and burgundy prices from being at an all-time high and people buying still you know Bordeaux's on premiere and all, all this stuff right it's still happening so I think and that's being driven by this one market that's you know, has all the wealth. And I think that the the thought is like, well, there's kids will just replace them. But there but I think what Silicon Valley Bank is trying to show and what we're trying to talk about as well is like the tea leaves don't show that that's going to happen. Right. Like what, everything that's that we're seeing right now is that if you don't start talking to this generation and fast, you might be fucked for for a long time. And you know, I don't think that they won't age into it. Right. The majority. And, of right. Them, and yeah. and this is really the time for people to snap out of it. And I think, you know, if, if people who listen to this podcast and you, and you and everyone who wrote in, we really appreciate it. If you don't subscribe to Vine Paris VP Pro and the look back, you should, which is where my co-founder Josh does analysis of the news every uh, week, every week on Friday. Mm-hmm. So today. The look back that's come, that came out has an amazing analysis of 
the massive, massive success of Stella Rosa mm-hmm. and Raboli in general. It is now the largest imported, imported wine mm-hmm. in America. It is outpacing Yellowtail. And one of the things they talk about is that the reason they have grown is because they have gone all in on marketing. And there is a quote that they give where they say they are going to spend more in 2023 and in 2024 than they did in the last, in 2020, 2021, and 2022. They are continuing to double down in spending to reach this new mark, this next market. And the brands that are doing that, I think are showing that that is the blueprint to win. That there is this huge opportunity to, and like you can shit on Stella Rosa's wines all you want. You can sit here saying, listening to me like, well, they make blueberry flavored and whatever. I'm, Yes, but they are talking to a very specific audience, but they are messaging to them constantly. And so they are winning market share in their price point. And I think that there are lots of wines who don't do this. And so because they don't market, that's the, that's the thing that I just kept thinking about ever since this when Zach said on Monday, right? Like the 5% stat. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. people build brands and market for a reason. And the fact that that's not happening and that's not something that's important, I think is why wine is just kind of slipping away. Because it's an investment, right? Yeah. It's a lot of money to do it, but it has to be worth it. And right? we've shown it pays off. Right. I think there is a problem for wine that may be somewhat inescapable or at least more challenging to escape than it might be for other parts of the beverage alcohol industry. And that is that in a lot of cases, the top end of the market is really disconnected from the large volume part of the market. So if you think about like whiskey, right, any of the big American distilleries can simultaneously promote their, you know, sort of more entry level priced whiskeys along with their very premium whiskeys. They have often the same distillery name, or at least they have, they're part of the same parent company. And it's not seen as sort of a, some sort of betrayal of fine, high quality bourbon to say, okay, well, we make an affordable $20 bottle and a really premium $200 bottle. Like no one looks at that and says, what the fuck? Like you can't be making premium bourbon and affordable bourbon. Like you're a sellout or you're not doing it right. And in wine for reasons, some of which are quasi valid, some of which I think are really antiquated and they're, they're antiquated, not just on the side of producers, but frankly, the side of a set of, you know, kind of people in the industry who are not producers, who are, whether they're professionals, journalists in some cases, critics, et cetera, there is this belief that like, okay, the Stella Rosa set is a, can a company can do that and we're just going to ignore them. Like, sure, they sell more, they import more wine than anyone else, but we didn't talk about Yellowtail. So why would we talk about this? And then there's the like very small portion of the market that's the very fine wine, that's the high end stuff. And that has to have a kind of like, purity to it it has to be made you know either by some you know quasi monastic person in burgundy or it has to be you know a small plot of land somewhere and it can't be owned by a larger company and a lot of that is just kind of naive to the way the world works these days i mean it's it, some of it exists sure but but being kind of so obsessed with that element of i don't know kind of ideological purity in a way is just part of the problem for wine. Because if you think about where the disconnect is, as you were pointing out, Adam, there is a lot of ad buy at the sort of grocery store, large scale production Mm -hmm. side of wine, not 
to the extent it could be, but that is the wine that is advertised. And the other stuff never gets advertised. And because it's not connected in any kind of meaningful way to consumers, the the fine wine is so disconnected Mm -hmm. from the affordable wine in terms of everything that it is, it, it doesn't move people into the category at all, unless you are looking for the affordable wine. You don't, you don't, see advertising for affordable wine and connect it to, oh, and then for a special occasion, I'm going to buy the $50 bottle from that producer instead of the $15 bottle. I just don't think that happens. Well, that's also because the marketing budgets are with those wines. Right, Adam? Mm -hmm. Yeah, So (laughs) until these brands start investing money to market their luxury wines or fine wines, like it's not going to happen. We're yeah. just going to continue to see the same thing. We are. We're going to continue to see the same thing. Or like, you know, I think where it's going to probably have to happen, and you see this happening in the big spirits companies, is like the the big wine brands are going to have to, in the same portfolio, share some wealth with the, with the fine wine brands. Mm-hmm. And... Or share some wealth with just the region in general, like just marketing California wine Mm -hmm. or just marketing Napa um, or helping to, you know, to push a a category. I think that's happening a little bit more than it used to. But like, that's what it's going to have to be. If we're just seeing Stella Rosa ads all the time, then it's just going to be Stella Rosa. Right. Something else I wanted to bring up, and I didn't bring it up earlier this week, was this idea of like wine kind of missing critically from pop culture in a yeah. way that we don't we we see with spirits, especially that I think is contributing to this as well. I just feel like we don't. I, I think we were talking about this maybe in the context of The Last of Us had a few wine moments um, in this past weekend's episode, um, but generally I just feel like we don't see a lot of pop stars or people in popular culture associating with wine in a way that could be meaningful for the category. Yeah, I, I don't think we do, and I think because when we do see people associating with wine— Oftentimes, they are celebrities that enjoy wine, but don't may not have the knowledge that the the wine Illuminati feels like they should have, and so it's very quick to jump on like why they're wrong or mm-hmm. why they you know why we shouldn't give a shit about them or why it's stupid, like. And I just think that because of that, you have a lot of people who are maybe less likely to get involved with wine, even if they're they're a huge fan of it or, or talk about it publicly, celebrities, et cetera, because, again, they don't want to be sort of called out and made to look foolish right. in a way that they don't feel like they, they feel comfortable doing with other things. I think what wine needs is we need more people who are willing to talk about the wines they love very publicly and who are more people that people can identify with. And, and we don't have that as much because I think they're not being propped up. We're, we're talking so much to influencers yep. who I think a lot of people feel like are probably people who are just being given the wines because they're being sent for them for free. And, you know, we need real people. And I, I don't know, even real celebrities, I don't know how that happens because anytime a celebrity talks about wine, there's, there's someone to call them out for why they may or may not understand it. I think there's been a, a decent embrace amongst culture of NBA stars who like wine. Yeah. That's kind of like the biggest, but like, where are the big wine companies working with these people then? Like why, why, 
why aren't we doing stuff with LeBron and Carmelo and like all these people love wine. Right. And you don't see them that often in anything besides their own wine projects. They're all, you know, like, and that is really interesting to me because these people are literally saying, I love wine. Huge, huge tastemakers. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen a huge company work with them. I haven't seen a huge, you know, when we did the the, the talk with Dwayne Wade, like Wade Sellers is awesome, but I don't see people using, but I don't think Dwayne Wade has the sort of bandwidth or even quite frankly, capital to make Wyatt Wade Sellers a massive brand. I think right now it's a sort of in the know brand, but he could easily be the spokesperson or be affiliated with a winery that does have that capacity and can spend against, you know, his celebrity or maybe, you know, now to some people, he's a little bit more irrelevant because he's not playing anymore. But like there's lots of people that are and that are really into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this actually raises an interesting point, too, which is. One of the challenges, I think, coming back to our to what, my point before about the disconnect between the sort of large scale brands and their price point versus, you know, sort of the very top of the market is, yeah, you know, it's very clear to anyone who pays any attention that LeBron is interested in and likes drinking wine. But at the same time, if you're on LeBron's Instagram yeah. feed these days, the only thing he posts it's about tequila, is tequila. Right? Yeah. He's posting about <laughs> drinking. And that's part of that's like a conscious, like, hey, which of these things is going to generate revenue for me? And part of it's because like LeBron has, I think, very fine taste in wine, but his taste in wine befits someone who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and can buy whatever fucking wine he wants. And that I think is part of the problem is a lot of the, the the sort of famous person influencer set in wine is like, yeah, sure. Great. I'm cool that you opened a bottle of, you know, 82 Latour, but like no one else can do that. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really move bottles for anyone because no one can be like, you know, as in a, whereas, you know, Los Lobos or whatever, that's in liquor stores. You, you can go buy it. it. It's yeah. not that expensive. And if you want to live the LeBron James lifestyle, it's a lot more accessible. It would be fascinating to me if one of these people got involved with like, I don't know about Stella but like an, a more, much more affordable wine, maybe even a, you know, a, a, a box wine project or a can project or something that could fit, that could be a big brand. I mean, we've certainly seen that the space in general, alcohol space is looking at, how do we engage with younger consumers, period? And, you know, there have been lots of misses and a few hits, and some of them have been connected to celebrities and some of them haven't. It's, it's no one knows. It's always a, you know, marketing is always a bit of a crapshoot. But I agree that it, it's odd that no one has, or at least if they've tried, it hasn't come to the market yet. Anything with any of these people who are very associated with wine that is not a super premium product. Because even Dwayne Wade's wine is like, it's expensive, a very premium yeah. product. But look, we have seen two. And this is also in the look back tomorrow. 19 Crimes, Snoop Dogg, and, and Martha. Martha Stewart. Yeah. Like, you know, again, and why are they the only, t- and, and, and it's authentic for two reasons, right? Like, I, they are, they like wine and they're criminals. <laughs> and like, and, and, and that's, and 19 Crimes is embracing that and they are too. And it's very funny to people like, oh, Martha went to, he didn't pay her taxes, went to prison. <laughs> but like, you know, it, it is, it's a funny thing that they're, it's very tongue in cheek, right? And people love it. People and people love that wine. And it feels very authentic mm-hmm. and it's growing. And I think that's the thing that sometimes that happens a lot with wine is I'll hear someone say, Well, like, do we know if they're a wine lover? Do we know how much they know about wine? Like, what's the you know, are they gonna be able to sit down with journalists and be quizzed? And I think certain wines, sure, that person should be able to do that. Other wines, maybe maybe the people you put the person in front of aren't douchey wine people. 
like who are going to quiz them on their knowledge of terroir and soil composition. Maybe you actually just have them do the interviews with Vogue, you know what I mean? Like, and let them talk about just what they like about wine as a cultural thing. And that is what I think has also, again, it's this gatekeeping thing mm-hmm. that is, that is made people nervous to do partnerships, get people involved who don't have the, the who don't speak the language. And I just think that's so stupid. And that is why I think a lot of times the sort of just easy point of, you know, easiest entry is the psalm. Because like, well, if this psalm, is this psalm a celebrity? We think they're, we think they're a tastemaker. You go with them because they speak the language. So you, you know that their friends, their peers won't call them out. But I think that market may be a little too small. Like if oh, you, for sure. you know, the, what you want is the mass market and the mass market is going to respond to people who just talk about why they love wine in a general sense. And that's okay in a lot of places, right? That's totally okay. I like rosé because it's delicious. It's fun to drink. It makes me think of being with my friends, having a great time sitting out in the sun, whatever it is. That's why I like rosé. I don't like rosé for its tasting notes, the way I pair it with X, Y, or Z, like that's cool because that's why people like lots of the spirits, right? Mm-hmm. The, I drink the spirit. And it makes me think of like when I go out to concerts or it makes me think of when I'm hanging out with friends on the weekend, watching sports or whatever, that's what it is. And I think wine has to find those moments and, and then spend money. Right. Two other points really. Yes. Quick. One is that, and I do want to come back to this in a larger episode, so I'm not going to get too deep into this, but that thing you were talking about a moment ago, Adam, of wine needing to find its moments, one of the other challenges for wine right now is that one of its primary moments, i.e. in restaurants with meals, is also being eaten into by other yeah. categories in a way that I think, and there are a lot of reasons for that, and again, we will address this fully in another episode. I'm just mentioning it now because it is important that that law, that slow erosion of wine's primacy at the table, in particular in restaurants is a big part of what has, I think, or is a part of the problem. And one of the reasons why you're not seeing uptake of wine in younger consumers, because younger consumers love to go out and eat. It's very clear. It's a, you know, millennials, Gen Z go out to eat plenty, but when they do, they're not drinking wine in restaurants the way, that an older set has and does. The other point I want to make, and this is a slightly more positive one, or at least optimistic, is that I do think that there is a tremendous opportunity for wine, even in not necessarily looking at the really large scale production, which in some ways we've been talking about in part here, but even in moderate sized production. And it is to talk about things that where wine does really seem to align with you know, sort of explained preferences of these demographic groups, right? It can be a very authentic product. It can be connected yeah. to a place, to to a small group of people. It can be, you know, it has a kind of, um, it, it is a, it can be a kind of a real artisanal product. It is in many cases. And it does so without having to necessarily work hard at proving that point. And, Beyond that, and I think this is something too that would be really beneficial for wine as a, as a whole, and way, a way that wine could start to shed some of its associations with and images with the boomer generation is the, the world of wine is so incredibly expansive and diverse now in terms of styles, varieties, places of origin, etc. And when you look at kind of the extremely narrow lens through which the 
wine consuming population that's older than us has looked at wine traditionally, it is really a few regions, a few varieties, a few styles. And those have so dominated the conversation around wine, in particular in these legacy publications that we talked about at the beginning, but just in general, they've so overwhelmed the broader conversation around wine because they're the things that get the points, get the big dollars and get the attention. And yet we do exist in this time where like the quality of wine the variety of wine that is readily available, not just in Seattle or in New York, but in markets around the country, is really remarkable. And that stuff, when you can get that message out to consumers, when you can get to them the excitement that surrounds not just Napa Cab or Burgundy, but wines from all over the place, that really can capture people's imaginations. And while I don't think it's reasonable at all for wine to just be like, "Mm, you know, consumers will come to us when they're ready for us. I do think that there is something to be said about a certain part of the drinking public that can be convinced, can be swayed that if you think of drinking wine as something like a lifelong journey, you know, there's so much to explore and discover, and it can feed into so many other things that you do with your time besides just drinking wine, that there, there is a lot of possibility there, but it requires a an imagination on the part of people making in a particular marketing wine to step out of the existing paradigm yeah. of the styles of wine that have dominated the, mm-hmm. the regions that have dominated because you never can sell kids their parents shit. It just doesn't work. Like we, we don't want the same things our parents wanted for the most part. And when, where we do, we're buying it and where we don't, we're not. And, and wine is trying to sell us our parents shit. I mean, that's really what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah. Right? I think that's completely it. And I think, Look, the I will I will go back to what I said last week. Or I'm sorry, on Monday. Whew, it's been a long day. Uh, is again, we've been around as a publication for about a decade, and I would still say there are a lot of wineries that we've never heard from that don't send to us that we if we know of the wine we'll go buy, but like still. And I think that's because there's a lot of if it's not broke, don't fix it attitude in wine, but it's clearly broke. Mm. And we talk about wine here in a very different way. And there was a while and there was a while that that was challenged. And I'm sorry, y'all. It's how our generation wants to talk about wine. The way that we when we taste and review wine, we don't blind it. We do know the price. We do talk about all of that in our evaluation of the wine because we want to understand if the wine is worth that price. We don't want to say, oh, this is a 97 based on not knowing how much it was and who made it and what the label looked like. And then when you open it, you're like, oh, shit, well, this is, you know, $300. Well, it better have been a 97 at 300 Right. Like, those are conversations consumers have. It's the same idea of, like, why these consumers love Brands like Suit Supply that are able to show you how they make their suit for a fraction of the cost of a Gucci one, but at the same quality. And, you know, you have fashion magazines that tear apart the clothes to understand the quality of the garments. Like, that's what people are interested in here. It's about transparency and talking about those things. And I think, to be honest with you, the reason we don't get sent a lot of those wines is because people are scared. Because they're scared when it's not from their traditional places where they're used to getting the scores. They might get lower from us. They might have us talk about their wines in a different way. We might say that some of these wines that are so celebrated from Napa are actually over-oaked, over-extracted palate busters. And they don't like it. 
and they're scared and so they don't but that's if you don't embrace trying to reach the next generation by going to the people who are talking to the next generation and speaking a different language then you will be with the same generation it's like look we all got to learn the new lingo right we got to understand yep. what the new slang is and if you don't then you're okay boomer you're so chuggy like those are the things that <laughs> will just continue to happen to you and they will find other people that talk to them in a way they want to be spoken to. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that. I think it's it's changing the conversation. We're having a different conversation, right? And I think I think it's probably less that they don't they are scared of how we'll rate their wines. I think it's more that they don't think they need us to. And and I think the winemakers who we've had in the office who get really excited about their wines and what they're doing and how it's new and kind of experimental and fun, like that's very infectious to us. And that kind of excitement that I think you're kind of alluding to, Zach, that that is like really exciting about wine right now. But I think it's it's so missed in this conversation. Yep. Totally. Well, thanks again for all the emails this past week. If you have further thoughts, hit us up again at podcast at com, or, you know, you know how to reach us on our socials. Mm -hmm. And I will talk to both of you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.